Welcome back to another episode of Category Insight, where we take a deep dive into everything OTC. This month, we are discussing matters of the heart. And no, I'm not talking about Valentine's Day, but instead, heart health. Today, we have some fantastic guests lined up for you with insight on how pharmacy teams can help patients keep their hearts healthy, first aid in the pharmacy, and make sure you stick around until the end of the podcast, where we have an extra special guest this month. So. Let's jump right in. First up, joining me today is Regina Giblin, Senior Cardiac Nurse at the British Heart Foundation. The foundation was founded in 1961 by a group of medical professionals wanting to fund further research into the causes, diagnosis, treatment and prevention of heart and circulatory disease. Hi Regina, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you, Monica. Thank you very much for inviting us to come along and talk about heart health. No problem. Could you tell me maybe a little bit about you, how long you've been in the profession or why you chose this area to specialise in? I've been a cardiac nurse for 18 years. Uh, I originally worked in the NHS um, in London um, for about 12 years. Uh, I worked in various different settings from coronary care to the Andrew department where they look after heart attack patients as well as um, post-op patients um, in intensive care. Um, so I've got a wide experience of, of cardiac care and then about six years ago I, I left the NHS and went to work for the British Heart Foundation because I have a passion about um, looking after people with, with heart disease as well as prevention of heart and circulatory diseases. So it felt like a natural progression to, to go and work for the British Heart Foundation um, as they're the largest uh, funder of cardiac research um, and, uh, you know, they, they help support patients with heart disease as well as prevent heart circulatory diseases. Um, so that was the reason I decided to work uh, to, to change roles from the NHS. Great. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for you to share your expertise with us today. Um, and I'd like to begin by discussing the advice that pharmacy teams can give to those wanting to look after their heart health, starting with diet. So, Regina, what does an unhealthy diet look like for heart health? So an unhealthy diet would be a diet that's high in saturated fats. It would be a diet that's high in salt. Um, it would be a diet low in fruit and vegetables. Um, um, and uh, pretty much a diet which 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 would be um, processed, highly processed foods. Um, so you know we advocate a Mediterranean style diet, which includes lots of fruit and vegetables, lots of pulses. Um, you know, looking at uh, leaner cuts of meat, thinking about cooking at home yourself, planning your meals, and, and thinking about the fat contents of each of each of your foods as well as you choose in the supermarket. It's about educating people how to look at labels as well. Uh, and portion sizes is very important. So there's quite a lot to think about with regards to a healthy diet. Um, but it's all about having a balance, um, a balanced diet. So having all the different food groups as well is quite important because you do you need the different food groups for different functions within your body. Um, and we'd also say that it's important to know your numbers. So um, the, to know your cholesterol levels would be very important. And, uh, and also and supporting that would be also to know your blood pressure as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so you just touched on cholesterol then. I think the term high cholesterol kind of gets thrown around a lot, but could you maybe kind of tell us what that is and and why it negatively impacts your heart health? Yeah, so everybody's got cholesterol naturally in their body. It's made in the liver. And uh, we need cholesterol for different functions in the body, for metabolism, for hormones, to make vitamin D, which keeps our bones healthy. Um, so we do have a certain level of cholesterol, which is circulating, which is so it's a fatty substance that is found in your blood. Um, some people have higher cholesterol than others. This can happen because of hereditary reasons, but also it can happen because of having an unhealthy diet or drinking lots of alcohol or not exercising. So these are some of the reasons why uh, people's cholesterol levels can be higher. Um, so in for for a target we would say to have less uh, than to, at the total cholesterol less than 5 um there is good and bad cholesterol and sugars which is called triglycerides so the good cholesterol is hdl which is high de- high density lipoproteins and the bad cholesterol is low density lipoproteins Basically, all these figures together make up the total cholesterol. So if you want to keep it simple, you want your cholesterol less than five, okay? Um, But you can get a breakdown of the numbers. So if you go to your GP to get your cholesterol level checked, then, um, you know, they can discuss with you the different levels. You can also get a a finger prick test done at, at your local pharmacy. Some pharmacies do that as well. So they can look at your total cholesterol and that can be the first indication. But uh, anyone that's over 40 can ask their GP to have their cholesterol level checked during their NHS health check. So we would be uh, advocating that people over 40 would get their NHS health check, which looks at their cardiovascular disease risk over the next 10 years. So the risk of developing um, a heart attack or stroke. So we'd be looking at blood pressure, your cholesterol level, your risk of diabetes, um, and also we talk about lifestyle. So they would talk about, you know, your diet, your exercise, if you smoke, how much alcohol you drink. So it would be a, a well-rounded appointment. And you can you can organize that through your GP or you can do it uh, with the practice nurse. I believe that some pharmacies are already doing blood pressure checks and they're looking at doing um, some heart related checks as well. So, you know, this is all related. So it would be important if someone wants to empower themselves to prevent heart and circulatory diseases that they go and find out what their blood pressure is and what their cholesterol is, but also think about their lifestyle, in particular, if they have anyone in their family who has heart and circulatory disease. Yes, absolutely. And blood pressure checks are such a valuable service run in pharmacies. And maybe to reinforce this, Regina, what can blood pressure tell us and how often should someone get their blood pressure checked? So your blood pressure is the amount of pressure exerted on the main artery of the body called the aorta to pump blood around the body. Your heart essentially is a pump to pump blood around and uh, it needs a certain amount of pressure to do that. So it has to pump blood to your brain, to your lungs, to your your kidneys. Um, So when you get your heart Uh, blood pressure measured. Um, You're measuring the amount of pressure it takes to do that. Um, High blood pressure, we would say, is the the top number is called systolic, is over 140. And the bottom number is called diastolic, which is over 90. So if you get a result of blood pressure, which is over 140, over 90, that would need to be 
checked again. Um, sometimes people who get their blood pressure checked um, can experience what we call white coat syndrome, which means when a healthcare professional checks their blood pressure, they get really anxious and they have high blood pressure reading you know, on the one on a, a one-off situation. So if there was a history of high blood pressure in the family, then that would definitely need to be checked again. So we would say anyone over 40 should have their high sorry, should have their blood pressure checked um, and uh, to see what the numbers are like. And if if they get one or two readings that are high, then again you'd have to ask your GP to follow that up because you may need a blood pressure monitor at home to check that every day for a week and record the, the readings yourself. Um, we do have videos on our BHF website about how to take a blood pressure as well because there's certain environmental factors that you, you should take into account. Like You should do it in a quiet room, for example. You should do it sitting down. You shouldn't do it after you've eaten and, and you shouldn't talk when you're getting the blood pressure checked. So little small tips like that. But um, And also we, we, we would uh, advise using a blood pressure cuff on your arm they used to have lots of people used to buy them for your wrist. Um, they're not as accurate. So we would we would recommend a blood pressure cuff for your arm and making sure that the cuff fits properly. Most cuff sizes are common medium. Um, and some people have got bigger arms or smaller arms. And you need the right size to get the right um, measurement. Um, so it really depends on what measurement you get, how often you would take it. If you're someone who's already on blood pressure medication, then you know you should be regularly doing it at home anyway, um, and because ha having high blood pressure, it doesn't give you any symptoms. We call it a silent killer, actually, um, because people, you know, there's there's a lot of people um, who have high blood pressure who don't actually realise it. Um, there's 4.8 million people in the UK living with undiagnosed high blood pressure. So what blood pressure wow. does to the heart is that it causes the arteries, walls within the heart um, to, to get damaged. And if you have damaged artery walls, plaque or fatty tissue or, or that cholesterol we're talking about can build up inside and called arthroma. Arthroma is whenever um, it's, it'll basically cause the artery to narrow up and reduce the amount of oxygen and blood supply getting to the heart muscle or this can happen to an artery going up to your brain. So therefore, it increases the risk of heart attack and strokes. Having high blood pressure over a long period can also affect the heart muscle. If your heart muscle gets enlarged, it doesn't work as well as a pump. And that can happen when that happens, that you know, someone can develop heart failure. So it's very, very important that uh, people find out you know, what their blood pressure is like, especially if they've got high blood pressure in their family. Yeah, definitely. And and we touched earlier on smoking. So smoking has been linked to poor heart health. And um, in pharmacy, we're currently heading into the NHS smoking cessation mandatory health campaign. What can pharmacy teams tell their patients wanting to quit about the impact of smoking on their heart health? Um, I think it's a very important one. It's if you're a smoker, it's the most important decision you can make to help your heart health and and your lung health. Uh, when you smoke cigarettes, um, the the smoke and the chemicals take up the place of the oxygen within your body. Um, so it's toxic, but so it causes damages to 
all of your organs, but in particular your heart, it can basically make the blood thicker. And it can also mean that um, the uh, the plaque, again, as we mentioned, can build up inside those arteries. When you slow down blood, it gets thicker and also um, it causes damage to the walls of the arteries. It reduces the amount of oxygen. So it makes a, it makes the environment more likely within the arteries of the heart to develop clots. Uh, and a clot within a coronary artery is a heart attack. So um, you know, stop smoking, you, you reduce that risk. And it's an accumulative effect as well. Um, if you smoke for a long time, the more damage you're doing to your heart and your lungs and your arteries, your circulatory system. So, you know, the quicker you stop, the, the better it is for your body in the long term. Um, people will start to feel better. They'll have more energy. Their heart muscle will work better. And um, after 10 years of stop smoking, your risk of heart, of heart attacks and strokes reduces to the amount of anyone who hadn't smoked before. So, you know, you can actually significantly change your risk as well. So um, if that person comes in and says they want to stop smoking, that's the best thing they can decide to do for themselves. And it's great that the pharmacists are there to support them because we know that if people ask for help, they're more likely to succeed because stopping smoking can take many, many attempts. And um, people need that support. You know, they need to talk to their family. They need the extra, you know, some medication. They might need some nicotine replacement therapy. Um, but all these things together, the support from the healthcare professional plus their family and maybe some medication will hopefully help them to stop smoking forever. Um, finally, Regina, this is maybe a bit self-indulgent of me because I've been finding this topic really interesting, but um, I've been reading a lot about the exciting kind of next frontier in heart health, which is the printing of a 3D heart. Would you be able to tell us about, well, what a, three, a printed 3D heart is, what it can do and kind of what does it mean for the future of heart health? Yeah, sure. Um, uh so the British Heart Foundation, as I mentioned earlier, were involved with, um, you know, supporting cardiac research. And we're looking at, you know, innovative ideas. We're trying to to turn science fiction into real life, um, you know, for life saving treatments and potential cure for for heart and circulatory disease. And one of the one of the projects we've got involved in was the 3D printed hearts. And um, basically, um, you take images from a scan, such as a CT scan or cardiac MRI scan, you, uh, that's combined to make a 3D visual of, of, of someone's heart on, on a computer. And then um, this, this file is sent then to the technicians um, who orientate the heart and select the material and the finish. And then um, they use like a special resin instead of um, ink to print it out. So it's, it's a, it, there is a special printer basically, um, and it's all layering. So for example, a baby's heart takes about 2000 layers of this resin and takes about three or four hours to print where a adult heart can, is, takes about 10,000 layers and it needs to be printed overnight. Um, so afterwards, th this printed heart gets washed to get rid of the resin and cleaned. And basically, it's then sent to the surgeon or cardiologist or researcher who, who requires it. So the idea is that you would print uh, someone's replica of their own heart to study it. So, huh. for example... Um, it's very helpful in congenital heart disease for children because children's hearts are tiny 
And um, if you had a, a complex heart surgery to perform on a little small infant, like three-month-old infant, six-month-old infant, if you had a, a 3D replica of their heart, you know, and you enlarged it, then the surgeon can look at it at different angles, can work out the best course of treatment for that surgery. So it really gives them an opportunity to plan instead of just going straight in there and, you know, opening up the little baby and and, and uh, finding the heart, you know, the way it is. Um, obviously, they've done heart scans, but to have something physical in front of you, um, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. And it is like science fiction, but, you know, they're able to do that now. So it's all about helping the surgeon and helping the researcher to plan more for the treatments. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really it's it's an amazing project, basically. Yeah, that that. Wow, that is so interesting. Thank you so much. The, the It does feel like the future is now when you hear stuff like that. Um, finally, could you maybe just tell me um, where pharmacy t- Oh, where pharmacy teams can signpost um, patients to for further support for their heart health? Well, um, they're definitely well placed because, you know, they're they're local to people and people, you know, can develop relationships with them. They can speak to them about the heart medication they're on already or, or interactions with other medication. And, and as we mentioned, they're doing blood pressure checks. They're, they can also do cholesterol checks. They can help with the stop smoking. Um, Information about to reduce your risk factors to heart disease, such as to stop smoking, to reduce your cholesterol, to look at your if you've got diabetes um, and look at a healthy diet uh, and blood pressure. All this information will be on our our website, bhf.org.uk. If you want a more specific information um, about cholesterol, there is a cholesterol charity called Heart UK. Um, They have lots of information about cholesterol levels and about diet and about treatments as well. Thank you so much. I'll be sure to share the links to all of those in the notes below. Um, Thank you so much for joining me um, on the podcast today, Regina. You've really opened my eyes to a lot about um, the impact heart health can have for and what pharmacy teams can do. And thank you so much for telling us about the 3D Heart. I've been really excited to hear about that. No problem. Uh, Thanks, Monica, for having me. Next up, we have Davith Beach, National Community Education Manager at the British Red Cross. Hi, Davith. How are you today? Hi, Monica. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me on. I'm very well, too. Thank you so much for joining me today. And as I said, you're from the British Red Cross, which has been a lifeline for people in crisis for over 150 years now. Could you maybe tell me a little bit about you and when and why you started a career in this field? Yeah, no problem. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The Red Cross has been around for many, many years across, not only here in the UK, but obviously around the world as well. Um, and there to sort of support people during a crisis, um, no matter who they are or where they are in the world. Um, but in terms of me and my sort of involvement with the Red Cross, I think I came across the um, the British Red Cross uh, probably about 20 years ago now. Um and I saw it as an organisation who was there to support support individuals, communities, um, people who were sort of struggling in in their day to day lives because of one reason or an, another. Um, and I was lucky enough to join the Red Cross as part of their um, what was then um, their sort of education programmes. 
and we did a whole load of work at that time and we still do um, and mainly my role was working in schools and educating uh, young people youth groups so on and so forth um, delivering life-saving first aid education to those young people across North Wales where I'm where I'm currently based um, and that sort of developed over the years um, f- through working for with groups of young people uh, then working with groups of um, adults as well um, who uh, were either vulnerable or high risk um, and again delivering uh, life-saving first aid skills and progressing on to other workshops where the Red Cross had had involvement with groups and of people over the years, for example, uh, uh, groups of um, refugee migrants and asylum seekers as well, and trying to sort of provide some education um, around the sort of stigmatizing behavior towards those groups and that that that, that, that demographic of, of people as well. So um, yeah, my journey with the British Red Cross has been quite interesting over the years, um, and I've been you know lucky enough to to work it with so many different groups of people all across all types of communities, not only here in North Wales, but Wales, and then now across the whole of the UK as well. Well, we are absolutely delighted to have you on the podcast today, and I'm really excited to tap into your years of experience. Um, Could we start, we're going to be discussing first aid and how um, pharmacists and pharmacy teams can, well, perform first aid and where they can learn about first aid. So, um, could you start by telling me what are some of the early signs that someone could be having a heart attack? So picture we're in the pharmacy, someone's come in. What what do pharmacy teams need to be looking out for? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a very sort of interesting one. And obviously there's so many different sort of first aid scenarios that, that people might experience in their day-to-day lives. But for, for the teams in the pharmacies, um, you know, it's it's being first of all just observant to the people that are there, um, that are waiting around, waiting for sort of prescriptions, so on and so forth. And if someone is sort of presenting with any type of distress, really, you know, you can we can always tell by someone's face if there if something's not quite right. Um, and then the one of the main things that we sort of talk about in in our first ed- education is that bystander effect and that is someone not stepping in to help and that is one of th- one of the things we try and encourage people to do to be that sort of humanitarian person and and to really sort of step in and that doing something is much better than doing nothing at all of course but if if someone is sort of presenting with any sort of vice like chest pains um, and that could spread to their arms or their neck or their jaw or, or to their back or their stomach, actually. Um, and, and that pain usually happens because there's a sort of blockage that stops the blood getting to the heart, to the muscle itself. Um, and and if that blockage is happening, that, that pain won't ease. So you, you would see that distress or that pain getting worse in, in that individual. And, and what, um, in your experience, are kind of some of the signs that people often miss or potentially overlook in this sort of situation? Um, well, it's it, as I mentioned, it's it's a lot to do with that sort of bystander effect of of the not wanting or not willing, or sometimes you know that fear of stepping in to help. Um, I think 
we all lead such sort of busy lives. So there's so many people around. Um, I think also because of what's happened during the pandemic, there is that fear of maybe stepping in and, and possibly uh, going, getting too close to someone these days as well. So I would encourage, you know, you can, there's so many things that you can do from a distance as well of talking to that person, trying to get a response from that person um, and really sort of asking them, are they okay? What's happening? How do they feel at this present time? And that's even before even getting close to them as well. As well. So, um, you know, I would encourage people just to, just to ask the questions first um, and show that support to, to the individual to start off with. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really think your comment there about COVID is so right. People are so much more reluctant to kind of help each other since since the pandemic. Um, absolutely. And But in a, in a case where a pharmacy team member has recognised um, these signs, what are the first aid steps they should, they should take to help someone who's potentially suffering from a heart attack? Well, I think one of the first things would make their colleagues um, alert them to the fact that something, someone is not quite um, okay in, in the pharmacy itself. Alert them, get someone else to possibly call 999 or, or, or for that person to call 999 themselves straight away as soon as possible because that is the key to, to helping someone who's having a heart attack. It can be so, so serious and it needs immediate attention. Um, once we know that... Um, you know the emergency services are on their way um, and we know obviously there's a lot of pharmacies that are either next to or part of um, surgeries as well doctor surgeries so it may be well shouting over to the reception of the surgery to get help as soon as possible um, but once that is done then we would sort of help that person and make them as comfortable as possible try and keep them calm and sit them down onto the floor um, uh, sitting them for leaning against a chair or a wall even and and really trying to sort of ease the strain on the heart um, sort of sitting them down and bringing their knees closer to their chest to make um, them as comfortable as possible so there is less strain on the heart and that it's not having to pump blood around um, as much yeah, and, and in these situations, what, what can sometimes kind of go wrong or that people think might be helpful but is not necessarily the right thing to, to do? Um, I think one of the main things is, is getting them onto the floor because people tend to sit people down in chairs, and, but then the problem is if that person then does collapse, if they do go from a heart attack into cardiac arrest where the heart uh, fails or stops, then they could potentially fall off that chair then you've you're presenting another sort of first aid scenario or another problem there. Also, by having them on the floor, if that person then does go into cardiac arrest, you can very quickly get them onto their back um, and be ready to perform chest compressions um, and obviously then make use of an AED, which is automate, an automated external defibrillator, um, which I'm sure would be um, on hand in most pharmacies or sort of doctor surgeries these days. And, and what um, are the current kind of guidelines for chest compressions in this situation? Like, is there a certain number that people should be aiming for? Well, um, within what we say in the British Red Cross and as part of our community education programme and, and all this information is obviously available online free for people to access. We've also got a really good first aid app, which is really 
really handy to have on your phone if you're not quite sure to do what to do. Everyone's got their phone to hand these days, haven't they? Um, so that that's a really yeah. handy app to have as well. Um, but what we recommend in 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 our program is 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 to just deliver chest compressions um, as a first port of call, um, and then to get the help there as soon as possible. So just continue to do chest compressions if that person um, is, is not breathing, and if, as I said, if they if they have moved from a sort of heart attack into cardiac arrest as such. That's great. Thank you so much. And could you maybe tell us um, where the name of the app and um, the website where people can go to to get further support? Yeah, of course. We've got we've got lots of different um, routes to learning as as we, we would say at the British Red Cross as part of not only our community education programme, but obviously as part of our Red Cross training programme as well. So if um, if anyone does need sort of further education or wants to learn more, then they can, if they just search for Red Cross education, then if it is a certificated first aid course that they're looking for, that they need because of work regulations, for example, they can come to our um, Red Cross training departments, which is, and they can search for that online. And then also as part of that, we've got our free community education offer as well, which where we deliver um, a whole host of uh, workshops, not only first aid, but also sessions around um, well-being and loneliness as well. Um, and these are free and accessible to anyone. Um, so that is our sort of self-directed learning. We've also then got workshops that we will deliver either face-to-face or, or in person or on online digitally, which um, everyone seems to have adopted really well to either working with, you know, um, one of the providers like Zoom or Teams or something like that as well. And then also we've got some really good uh, first aid apps. So if people want to go to the Apple Store or the Play Store and just search for Red Cross First Aid, then they can download our free and easy to use first aid app which has got um, um, some really good descriptions and clear directions of what to do it's got some great videos in there um, with some really good people acting some lots of different first aid scenarios out Um, and it's also got some really clever little quizzes at the end so you can sort of test yourself you can you can read through the descriptions you can watch the videos and then you can give yourself a little test to see if um if 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 you've learned something from that, um, uh, from sort of having a look at our first aid app as well, and of course, you know the app is um, has proven to us that it's been useful in real life first aid scenarios. People have have fed back to us that they sort of froze, couldn't remember what to do, got their phone out, and actually used the app to help them um, um, look after someone in in a first aid scenario. Oh wow, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I'll be sure to include links um, to all of those resources in the podcast notes below. And David, thank you so much for your time today. That was really insightful. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time today. And um, I hope um, some of the people listening are able to get onto the British Red Cross website and sort of uh, learn a few skills that one day might be really useful, not only to to the staff but or the people there, who were using the pharmacy, but also to sort of friends and loved ones. And finally, on today's podcast, we have an extra special guest. Today, I'm joined by Ed Wilson, Managing Director at Rosedale Northern in York. 
When he was just 22 years old, Ed had to undergo a heart transplant. Now, it's thought that 50 in every 100 people who have a heart transplant, so 50%, will live for at least 10 years, according to the NHS. Now, 35 years later, Ed's transplant story is nothing short of success. Ed, hello. hello. How are you? Good. Very good. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Your story is incredible. And I just wondered if you could share with us what it's like to have to undergo a heart transplant at just 22. Um, well, it was, um, it was initially, it was quite scary. Um, although the the decision making process was very simple. What, what happened initially was I, uh, I had a virus, uh, just a cold and flu virus. Uh, and as viruses attack muscles, that's their natural aim. It attacked my heart muscle and it caused it to inflate to twice its normal size and it then collapsed. Um, this is known as a, a viral cardiomyopathy. Uh, at that stage, um, it took a lot of diagnosis. Uh, I ended up in hospital in Newcastle and I was given roughly seven days in which to uh, to survive if i uh, could get a transplant yeah. then that would be okay but if i couldn't then unfortunately that would have been it so the, the decision making yeah. process was uh, was taken out of my hands really yeah and 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 how has it been for you to live your life with a heart transplant um initially the thought of it the thought of living my life having to take medication every day was quite daunting when you're 22 that's not the not the kind of future you really think of but in reality, it hasn't really affected my life greatly. I'm well monitored by Harefield Hospital. Uh, I get regular annual checkups. Uh, and taking medication is just something that we all do nowadays, whether it's vitamins or whatever. So it's, it's just a normal thing, really. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what medicine do you have to take? Uh, I take uh, anti-rejection drugs. So I take cyclosporin and I take a torvastatin to monitor control with that. Uh, and I take uh, a, a couple of other uh, paracetamol-based uh, medication and an aspirin. And do you have? Do, did you have to kind of eat any kind of specific diet or anything? Or uh, not specific, although we are uh, we're given quite a lot of guidance on on diet and health, healthy eating, um, and it's just really just a regular balanced diet. I don't monitor my diet very closely, as I'm, I'm sure. Uh, most of us don't as as, as life goes on. <laughs> However, uh, I am well aware of, of what I should and shouldn't be eating and try and keep it to reasonable levels. The only thing I would say is I've been contacted uh, a few times by Harefield over the years who, if I would mind having conversations with people who were in a similar position to how I was. And, and mm -hmm. really, the only thing I would say is uh, that the, the care and the uh, the aftercare and the attention you're given uh, is is second to none really and it's it although it's it's not something that anybody would want to face it's it's something that if it does land in, in your in your environment then don't be too afraid of it because life can go on perfectly normally post-transplant as i've found yeah and and what did your post-care involve um exercise really was the main thing um exercise and monitoring uh, and regular testing of the heart muscle to make sure it, it wasn't rejecting um, the the heart being an alien species inside your body that's the, what's the main concern post transplant but the, mm -hmm. the 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 levels of care and attention and um, and the, the aftercare went was very closely monitored for up to two years I'm now only going down there every uh, every year twice a year but that has that, that's been the case for nearly 25 years now so it, although we are monitored closely and we're given plenty of advice um, it, it's not something that is invasive uh, and they are uh, very professional at what they do. The, the, the aftercare is what, what changed when I had my transplant. Prior to my transplant, 
the, the success rate was quite low. The transplant themselves, the operation was fairly straightforward, but the survival rate was low because the aftercare wasn't perfected. And I was very lucky that, uh, that it was times that the aftercare was perfected when I had my transplant. And that's what made all the difference, really. Thank you so much to both our experts and to Ed for joining me on the podcast this month. We hope we've given you a deeper insight into the matters of the heart. And if you came here looking for love advice, sorry to disappoint. Make sure you check out our show notes to find links to all the amazing resources we have discussed today. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss us next month. Until then, I'm Monica West and this is Category Insight.